Today I'll be reading Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., v. President and Fellows of Harvard College, decided June 29, 2023. In the wake of the Civil War, the country focused its attention on restoring the Union and establishing the legal status of newly freed slaves. The Constitution was amended to abolish slavery and proclaim that all persons born in the United States are citizens, entitled to the privileges or immunities of citizenship and the equal protection of the laws. Because of that second founding, our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. This court's commitment to that equality principle has ebbed and flowed over time. After forsaking the principle for decades, offering a judicial imprimatur to segregation, and ushering in the Jim Crow era, the court finally corrected course in Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, announcing that primary schools must either desegregate with all deliberate speed or else close their doors. It then pulled back in Grutter v. Bollinger, 2003, permitting universities to discriminate based on race in their admissions process, though only temporarily, in order to achieve alleged educational benefits of diversity. Yet the Constitution continues to embody a simple truth. Two discriminatory wrongs cannot make a right. I wrote separately in Gruder explaining that the use of race in higher education admissions decisions, regardless of whether intended to help or to hurt, violates the 14th Amendment. In the decades since, I have repeatedly stated that Gruder was wrongly decided and should be overruled. Today, and despite a lengthy interregnum, the Constitution prevails. Because the court today applies genuine strict scrutiny to the race-conscious admissions policies employed at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, UNC, and finds that they fail that searching review, I join the majority opinion in full. I write separately to offer an originalist defense of the colorblind Constitution. To explain further the flaws of the court's gruder jurisprudence. To clarify that all forms of discrimination based on race, including so-called affirmative action, are prohibited under the Constitution. And to emphasize the pernicious effects of all such discrimination. Part 1. In the 1860s, Congress proposed and the states ratified the 13th and 14th Amendments, and with the authority conferred by these amendments, Congress passed two landmark Civil Rights Acts. Throughout the debates on each of these measures, their proponents repeatedly affirmed their view of equal citizenship and the racial equality that flows from it. In fact, they held this principle so deeply that their crowning accomplishment, the 14th Amendment, ensures racial equality with no textual reference to race whatsoever. The history of these measures' enactment renders their motivating principle as clear as their text. All citizens of the United States, regardless of skin color, are equal before the law. 
I do not contend that all of the individuals who put forth and ratified the 14th Amendment universally believe this to be true. Some members of the proposing Congress, for example, oppose the amendment, and the historical record, particularly with respect to the debates on ratification in the states, is sparse. Nonetheless, substantial evidence suggests that the 14th Amendment was passed to establish the broad constitutional principle of full and complete equality of all persons under the law, forbidding all legal distinctions based on race or color. This was Justice Harlan's view in his lone dissent in Plessy, where he observed that our Constitution is colorblind. It was the view of the court in Brown which rejected any authority to use race as a factor in affording educational opportunities. And it is the view adopted in the court's opinion today, requiring the absolute equality of all citizens under the law. Section A. In its 1864 election platform, the Republican Party pledged to amend the Constitution to accomplish the utter and complete extirpation of slavery from the soil of the Republic. After their landslide victory, Republicans quickly moved to make good on that promise. Congress proposed what would become the 13th Amendment to the United States in January 1865, and it was ratified as part of the Constitution later that year. The new amendment stated that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in the United States, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. It thus not only prohibited states from themselves enslaving persons, but also obligated them to end enslavement by private individuals within their borders. Its framers viewed the text broadly, arguing that it allowed Congress to legislate not merely against slavery itself, but against all the badges and relics of a slave system. The amendment also authorized Congress to enforce its terms by appropriate legislation, authority not granted in any prior amendment. Proponents believed this enforcement clause permitted legislative measures designed to accomplish the amendment's broader goal of equality for the freedmen. It quickly became clear, however, that further amendment would be necessary to safeguard that goal. Soon after the 13th Amendment's adoption, the reconstructed southern states began to enact black codes, which circumscribed the newly won freedoms of blacks. The Black Code of Mississippi, for example, imposed all sorts of disabilities on blacks, including limiting their freedom of movement and barring them from following certain occupations, owning firearms, serving on juries, testifying in cases involving whites, or voting. Congress responded with the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1866 in an attempt to preempt the Black Codes. The 1866 Act promised such a sweeping form of equality that it would lead many to say that it exceeded the scope of Congress's authority under the 13th Amendment. As enacted, it stated, Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America, in Congress assembled, that all persons born in the United States 
and not subject to any foreign power, excluding Indians not taxed, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States, and such citizens of every race and color, without regard to any previous condition of slavery or involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall have the same right in every state and territory in the United States to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, and give evidence to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, and to full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of person and property, as is enjoyed by white citizens, and shall be subject to like punishment, pains, and penalties, and to none other any law, statute, ordinance, regulation, or custom, to the contrary notwithstanding. The text of the provision left no doubt as to its aim. All persons born in the United States were equal citizens, entitled to the same rights and subject to the same penalties as white citizens in the categories enumerated. And while the 1866 Act used the rights of white citizens as a benchmark, its rule was decidedly colorblind, safeguarding legal equality for all citizens of every race and color, and providing the same rights to all. The 1866 Act's evolution further highlights its rule of equality. To start, Dred Scott v. Sanford, 1857, had previously held that blacks were not regarded as a portion of the people or citizens of the government, and had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. The act, however, would effectively overrule Dred Scott and ensure the equality that had been promised to blacks. But the act went further still. On January 29, 1866, Senator Lyman Trumbull, the bill's principal sponsor in the Senate, proposed text stating that all persons of African descent born in the United States are hereby declared to be citizens. The following day, Trumbull revised his proposal, removing the reference to African descent and declaring more broadly that all persons in the United States and not subject to any foreign power are citizens of the United States. In the years before the 14th Amendment's adoption, jurists and legislators often connected citizenship with equality, where the absence or presence of one entailed the absence or presence of the other. The addition of a citizenship guarantee thus evidenced an intent to broaden the provision, extending beyond recently freed blacks and incorporating a more general view of equality for all Americans. Indeed, the drafters later included a specific carve-out for Indians not taxed, demonstrating the breadth of the bill's otherwise general citizenship language. As Trumbull explained, the provision created a bond between all Americans. Any statute which is not equal to all and which deprives any citizen of civil rights which are secured to other citizens was an unjust encroachment upon its liberty, and a badge of servitude prohibited by the Constitution. 
Trumbull and most of the act's other supporters identified the 13th Amendment as a principal source of constitutional authority for the act's non-discrimination provisions. In particular, they explained that the 13th Amendment allowed Congress not merely to legislate against slavery itself, but also to countermeasures which deprive any citizen of civil rights which are secured to other citizens. But opponents argued that Congress's authority did not sweep so broadly. President Andrew Johnson, for example, contended that Congress lacked authority to pass the measure, seizing on the breadth of the citizenship text and emphasizing state authority over matters of state citizenship. Consequently, doubts about the constitutional authority conferred by that measure led supporters to supplement their 13th Amendment arguments with other sources of constitutional authority. As debates continued, it became increasingly apparent that safeguarding the 1866 Act, including its promise of black citizenship and the equal rights that citizenship entailed, would require further submission to the people of the United States in the form of a proposed constitutional amendment. Section B. Critically, many of those who believed that Congress lacked the authority to enact the 1866 Act also supported the principle of racial equality. So, almost immediately following the ratification of the 13th Amendment, several proposals for further amendments were submitted in Congress. One such proposal, approved by the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, and then submitted to the House of Representatives on February 26, 1866, would have declared that the Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper to secure the citizens of each state all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states, and to all persons in the several states equal protection in the rights of life, liberty, and property. Representative John Bingham, its drafter, was among those who believed Congress lacked the power to enact the 1866 Act. Specifically, he believed the very letter of the Constitution already required equality, but the enforcement of that requirement is of the reserved powers of the states. His proposed constitutional amendment accordingly would provide a clear constitutional basis for the 1866 Act and ensure that future Congresses would be unable to repeal it. Discussion of Bingham's initial draft was later postponed in the House, but the Joint Committee on Reconstruction continued its work. In April, Representative Thaddeus Stevens proposed to the Joint Committee an amendment that began, No discrimination shall be made by any state nor by the United States as to the civil rights of persons because of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Stevens's proposal was later revised to read as follows, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of any person, of life, liberty, or property, without due process of law, 
nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. This revised text was submitted to the full House on April 30, 1866. Like the eventual first section of the 14th Amendment, this proposal embodied the familiar privileges or immunities, due process, and equal protection clauses. And importantly, it also featured an enforcement clause, with text borrowed from the 13th Amendment, conferring upon Congress the power to enforce its provisions. Stevens explained that the draft was intended to allow Congress to correct the unjust legislation of the states, so far that the law which operates upon one man shall operate equally upon all. Moreover, Stevenson's later statements indicate that he did not believe there was a difference in substance between the new proposal and earlier measures calling for impartial and equal treatment without regard to race. And Bingham argued that the need for the proposed text was one of the lessons that have been taught by the history of the past four years of terrific conflict during the Civil War. The proposal passed the House by a vote of 128 to 37. Senator Jacob Howard introduced the proposed amendment in the Senate, powerfully asking, Ought not the time to be now passed when one measure of justice is to be meted out to a member of one caste, while another and a different measure is meted out to the member of another caste? both castes being alike citizens of the United States, both bound to obey the same laws, to sustain the burdens of the same government, and both equally responsible to justice and to God for the deeds done in the body. In keeping with this view, he proposed in an introductory sentence, declaring that all persons born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States and of the states wherein they reside. This text, the Citizenship Clause, was the final missing element of what would ultimately become Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Howard's draft for the proposed citizenship text was modeled on the Civil Rights Act of 66's text, and he suggested the alternative language to remove all doubt as to what persons are or are not citizens of the United States, a question which had long been a great desideratum in the jurisprudence and legislation of this country. He further characterized the addition as simply declaratory of what I regard as the law of the land already. The proposal was approved in the Senate by a vote of 33 to 11. The House then reconciled differences between the two measures, approving the Senate's changes by a vote of 120 to 32. And in June 1866, the amendment was submitted to the states for their consideration and ratification. Two years later, it was ratified by the requisite number of states, and became the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. 
its opening words instilled in our nation's constitution a new birth of freedom. This opinion has been divided into multiple parts, and we've just come to the end of the first. But don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.